please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. I meet on a regular basis with a number of pastors in our community or nearby who are from other churches, other denominations, but we share common faith in Christ and uh, some very similar convictions in terms of church and theology. And the idea is that we encourage each other in our ministries and pray for one another. Well, in that meeting this week, we discussed a unique challenge that most pastors face when serving the congregation as a shepherd. And that challenge is, and the question we discussed together is, how does a pastor be a friend to the people he serves? It's a good question. The answer that we came up with as a group is that God's grace is good enough that pastors can be both shepherds and friends to the people of the congregation that they serve. It's because God cares about his people having friends. I mean, how is it that God could call a man into pastoral ministry and all of a sudden he no longer has the ability to have friends? If the ministry is God's idea and friendship are God's idea, then surely these things are compatible. Human friendship, you see, companionship, human fellowship is very important to God. But let me turn the tables for a moment. How about you? Do you have friends in this church? It's a good question. Maybe you think your situation, like sometimes pastors feel their situation, maybe you think your situation makes friendships difficult, if not impossible, for you here. Consider a couple of examples. Maybe you're too new to have friends in the church. Or maybe there's something different about you, your ethnicity, maybe the language you speak, your mother tongue. Maybe your mental health or some disability for you makes it seem like friendships are hard, if not impossible. Maybe your issue is one of age, ageism. You're too young to have friends in the church. They're my parents' friends. Or you're too old. My children are grown and moved away, and most of the people in this church have small children. Maybe it's a theological or religious problem of friendship. Maybe you're not a good enough Christian. You don't know enough of your Bible. You don't read your Bible. You don't know any theology. You don't know what reformed means. Maybe when you're a better Christian, you'll be able to have friends here. Wow. Sounds like that you have to be young with children, with a Bible or a theological degree, speaking English as your first language, Majority culture white, no special needs, no unique outlook on life, no mental illness and disability, and not a pastor in order to have friends in this church. What's the solution to this problem of friendship? 
I'm going to explore this a little in this morning's sermon. I've given my sermon title this morning in the form of a question, a question about friendship. Who do you share life with? That's my sermon title this morning. It's a question. I'd like you to ask it of yourselves. Who do you share life with? In seeking an answer to this question, our text this morning, 1 John 1, 3, and 4, points us in two directions. It first points us towards God. That's the vertical dimension of sharing life. And second, it points us towards one another. That's the horizontal dimension of sharing life. I'm going to help you answer this question, in other words, who do you share life with, by showing you in God's word that, first of all, you share life or you're called to share life with God, first and foremost. That's the foundation, the starting point, the basis for all other relationships. And then second, you share life, as the text will show us, with us, with one another. Knowing and understanding this sequence and this priority will give you a better point of view when thinking about your human friendships. So let's turn our attention then to the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in the gospel you have shared your life with us. And we are privileged to share life with others who share this faith. Please illuminate your word in this matter of human friendships and help us as a church to grow in our understanding of what it means to be your people on mission in your world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My first point and the answer, the first answer to the question, who do you share life with, is this. The distinctively Christian answer is that you share life with God. You share the life of God. Now, right out of the bat, there's controversy because it is not universally believed that a human being can share life with God. For instance, a skeptic or an atheist doesn't believe God exists, that God is a figment of your imagination, an extension of your highest hopes and dreams, providing you an evolutionary advantage so that you can better propagate the species by not living in gloom and hopelessness. So we construct a notion of God that enables us to have a sense of something beyond ourselves, even though we all know that life is fundamentally meaningless. So if that's you or that's someone you know, the thought of sharing life with a being that doesn't exist is preposterous. It's foolish. But on the religious side, there are many Christian traditions which think that Creatures, human beings, cannot share life with God because he is divine and it's unsuitable or, or unseemly for the divine being to share life with a mere human creature and a sinful creature at that. 
And another way that people don't agree with this is people who simply treat religion as a transaction. God has something I need, I got it, I move on. I don't share life with God. I get salvation or the sacrament or whatever I'm getting, but I'm living my life largely on my own. Religion isn't about sharing life with God for you. If, that, if you identify or resonate with that, I'll, I'll call it a, a formalistic religious approach to the question of faith. But the Bible's answer is that God exists and that not only God is able to share life with you, you were made, created to share life with God, and it is possible. And no religion that falls short of that lofty ideal is worth the paper it's printed on. Starting with God and thinking about friendships by thinking about your relationship with God is like starting with the cornerstone if you're a mason or you're a carpenter and you're laying out the foundation of the building. It's the only way to ensure that everything else that follows is in line. If you're a musician, it's like the A440 played by the first chair violin. It's that starting note that everyone matches as they're tuning their instruments and preparing for the performance. What does our text say about the life of God? This is a little bit of a review from last week. It says that the life of God was in the beginning. I call this the root of the world. So God's life existed when the world began and pre-existed. So God was alive, a self-existent, eternal, living being before any other life existed. And then when God speaks and brings creaturely life into existence, it's a kind of accommodated outflow of who he is. It's analogous to his life, not the same as the divine life, but it's analogous to his life, all life ultimately coming from God. And so it is eternal life, verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. There's only one eternal life, and it's the life of God. And this life is with the Father, you see, so it's God's eternal life, but then is expressed or communicated to us. It was made manifest to us. It's the unveiling, the disclosing of the eternal life, the divine life, that we have seen, verse 3, our text for this morning, we have seen and heard it, and we're proclaiming it also to you. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God shares life with himself, the divine life. I want to review a few basic truths, a few basic Bible truths before we go any further. A theologian that I read and, and studied in preparing for this morning's sermon, Judith Liu, commenting on our passage, defines fellowship, which is mentioned twice in our verse, verse 3, that you too may have fellowship with us, fellowship, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, Dr. Liu says, is the equality of partners in some common enterprise or activity. A fellowship is the equality of partners in some common enterprise and activity. Of course, I thought of the fellowship of the ring. What an enterprise to defeat the bad man. And there was an equality of partners. Each one had a kind of gift that he brought to the equation of solving this horrible puzzle. That's a basic truth. But another basic truth is that God enjoys fellowship and equality of partnership in some enterprise. God enjoys fellowship with himself. God exists in community with himself. And that community enables God to experience fullness of joy with himself. If that were anybody else saying that about himself besides God, it would be the, the ultimate hubris, the ultimate, I don't know, it's a, a, certainly a mental illness of some kind. But when God shares life with himself, he is perfect in doing so. Because he's the, the perfect living being. He exists in total and ultimate perfection. God is the definition of life. And God is perfectly satisfied in his own life. And so God takes joy in himself but it's not that he's looking in the mirror. Another basic truth is that God is not just one, but God is three. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And two of the persons of the Trinity are mentioned in my passage. Our fellowship, verse 3 says, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, the threeness of God, is, according to St. Augustine, the, and I didn't write down the quote, here it is, the heart and center of Christianity. That's what the Trinity is. The oneness and threeness of God. God exists in one, per, in one being and three persons. We say God the Father, the person of the Father, God the Son, the person of the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. Each of the three persons are fully God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And the text is telling us that the Father and the Son share eternal life together before any, anyone else has come into the picture. So God has everything he needs. God lives in a perfect unity and in a perfect community. He is completely one, and yet he is the definition of diversity, the perfect definition of diversity. All these diversity initiatives that you hear about, they're all just trying to copy the diversity that exists in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father communicates to the Son. The Son receives the communication from the Father. The Father delights in the Son, and the Son delights in the Father, and the Father and the Son delight in the Spirit, and the Spirit delights in the Father and the Son. Three different persons, one being. If God lacks nothing, if God has everything, he is the definition of the highest and purest good. He is the definition of blessed. And if you feel blessed, you have no idea what it means to be blessed. God is blessed. Because blessing, ultimate blessing, perfect blessing, only exists in God. So these basic truths is fellowship is an equality of partners in some activity or enterprise, and God has that. He, he, has, he is the definition of a community or an equality of partners in the common enterprise of, of being God and then in creating the world. And so he has fullness of joy apart from any other thing because he's triune. He lacks nothing. He has everything, and so he takes delight in himself. This is the life of God. This is the first answer to the question, who do you share life with? For the Christian is God, but you need to understand that God doesn't need you. God already shares life with himself. How is it that we come then to share in the life of God. Again, from last week, we saw that that which is from the beginning, 1 John 1, 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life. You come to share in the life of God, that preexistent, perfect, fully blessed, triune life of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the coming of the Son, clothed in human flesh. He lived a perfect life that you could never live. He then hung on the cross and died, bleeding, suffering, physical torment, and ultimately the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus, in his life and in the proclamation, the explanation of the life of Christ, as John is explaining it in this letter, as I'm explaining it right now with the sermon, the preaching of the gospel brings the life of God into the, into the life of a sinner. You share the life of God when you hear about what God has done in Jesus Christ. You see, he became man because someone had to obey as a man in order to please God. Adam failed and all of us with him. But that someone also had to be God in order to satisfy eternal, permanent, ultimate justice. And so when you hear about Jesus, that there is a man who satisfies the justice of God by obeying it, but then also satisfies the justice of God by suffering the punishment that you deserve, you hearing that, believing it, you have the life of God. And nothing is the same. 
And if you're hearing this for the first time this morning and you're like, I think this is the Christian faith that I've been struggling with, you are right. And so the answer is to say, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that He is what I need to have life. As an aside, we're talking about friendships. That's a game changer when it comes to your friendships. That's, that changes it. That changes everything. It changes who you're looking to to be a friend. It changes the kind of friend you are to the people you're already friends with. It changes your expectations of them and of yourself in that relationship. We'll see that more in a minute. Christ has been born, the incarnation, so that you might share the life of God. Listen to 1 John. Actually, we'll turn there. 1 John 3.23. Just turn over one page. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Interesting there how faith in Christ gives me the life of God that's implied here, and it changes my relationship to other people. Look at one more page, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone that believes that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God has been born of God. The life of God. It's new life. It's not the kind of life that you get by being born out of your mother's womb. That was Nicodemus' problem in John chapter 3. He's like, how do I get born again? Like, biologically, Jesus, how does that work? And he's like, Nicodemus, is anybody in there? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know? Look, he says in John chapter 3, verse 11, we see and testify of what we have experienced and what we know. Jesus is saying Nicodemus has no idea. He hasn't experienced the life of God. That's why he, he doesn't understand it and he can't talk about it, much less teach it. A teacher in Israel. The message that is proclaimed is that at the right time, Romans chapter 5, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, Paul says, will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. And this is the money verse. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were alive in a manner of speaking, but that life wasn't worth keeping. And if you've been born again, if you know the life of God, if you've seen and believed the gospel, you know what I'm talking about. That man, we don't even need to talk about him. The old me. Because I now have the life of God. This is the message which is proclaimed. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. I love this word, proclaim. We're announcing it. 
This is a prophetic declaration. This is a statement of the truth of the world. This is speaking into the, into the face of a hurricane force wind and watching it become still. Because the proclamation of the gospel is stronger than anything else in the world. It can do things and change things that, humanly speaking, are undoable and unchangeable. And the proclamation, notice in our text in verse 4, it isn't just proclaimed by John to his church in ancient Ephesus or wherever his church may have been, we're not told. It is written down, verse 4. We are writing these things. So John, as he's writing, maybe he's left-handed, is proclaiming the gospel. This letter, this epistle of John, is a written proclamation about the life of God and how you can receive it. And so reading the Bible is reading the gospel. It's what he heard and saw. Yes, I think John heard it and saw it. More on that in a moment. But not everybody that heard and saw Jesus heard and saw Jesus. John heard, but then he heard. He heard it with his ears, but then he heard it in his heart, and it changed him. He saw Jesus, but then notice in verse 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have perceived, in other words. We've seen it, but then we looked upon it. We actually began to understand what we were looking at. This is the, the atheist canard. It's a, if, you, if you show me a, a, a man who, who re regenerates uh, an amputated arm, then I will believe. It's the straw man that says, you, you need to satisfy my criterion for belief and then I will believe. But the reality is the people who saw those things didn't believe because it isn't enough to see. You have to perceive. You have to look upon it. In order to share in the life of God requires faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus, who he is and what he did, brings the life of God into your life or, and I'm rephrasing it, Believing in Jesus raises you to join the life of God where God is. It's the heavenly life. So, first point. Who do you share life with? This is an, ex an exposing question, perhaps. Sharing life starts with God. That's why you are alive is that you would share the life of God. And if you don't share the life of God, you haven't even lived yet. Wow. Well, when are we going to talk about friendships? I'm getting there. Secondly, who do you share life with? Our text tells us 
that we share life with us. Verse 3, so that you too may share life. That's a phrase that I'm using to, to talk about fellowship. That you too may have fellowship with us. You share life, my second point, with us. Who is the us here? Well, my fourth grade English teacher would tell me that us is first person plural. We, us, first person plural. The person who says we or us is included as are the others. So you doesn't include me. We is all of us together. So who is the we? Who is the, we? Who is the us? Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Well, I think it's, it's a two-layered we. I'm digging into a one little word here. It's an apostolic we. We is John and his brother James. It's Matthew the tax collector. It's James, son of Alphaeus. It's Peter. We is the merry band of the apostles. Those OGs, the original guys. Matthias was added to take Judas's place who betrayed our Lord. When John says, we have heard, we have seen, I think he's talking about his authority as an apostle. Now, he doesn't say his name here. He's clever this way. John is intentionally shy, or if I may put it this way, indirect in, 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 in a sense, suppressing or avoiding mentioning who he is. He simply says, we have heard, we proclaim to you. It's the apostolic we. It's intended to go, okay. I need to pay attention. I mean, it was just some, you know, Joe Blow talking about Jesus. That's one thing. But we who have heard, we who have seen, we have touched with our hands, we proclaim to you, I need to listen. It's the authoritative, apostolic we. But the second layer, I'm calling it as an associated we. This is a we that John is inviting you to enter into. It's an us. Take a look at a couple of these passages in John. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Is there any separation at this point between John and the reader and you and me? No way. John's saying, he may as well say, I. If I say, I have fellowship with him while I walk in darkness, I am a liar, and so are you. It's true of all of us. He's a, you see, he's inviting you in 
to the gospel truth, and it, we're going to see in a couple weeks, this is actually one of the first tests of many in John's gospel. And it's framed with this phrase, we. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, what does it say? We. We have an advocate with the Father. Is this just you? Does John not have an advocate with the Father too? You see how he's doing this? As a teacher, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a preacher, he's drawing you in to the life of God. He's inviting you indirectly to participate in the very life of God by this associative we. It's a communal we. So the we of the prologue is him and us. Me and you. Me talking to you. You listening to me, if you will. But right away, as soon as we get into verse 5 of our, of our letter, chapter 1, verse 5, that apostolic authoritative we begins to break down or at least become permeable. And he's encouraging you to join him over here where he is, trusting in God, receiving the life of God, trusting in God's Son, Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, and living in a way that shows that you love God, that you have the life of God, and that you love Jesus Christ as well. The clear message of 1 John is that we're all in this together. But there's a warning. You better be in this with us. If you find yourself outside of the we, then you are not just without the life of God, you are, as we're going to see in this letter, an enemy of God. So while John subtly and pastorally and gently and kindly invites you, and I'm inviting you as well, into the life of God and into the life with us, there's a warning that if you refuse the life of God and therefore refuse the life with us, you are an enemy of God and an enemy of us. John is very concerned that the people you share your life with share the life of God. He's so concerned about it that he describes this situation as one in which creates fullness of joy, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And my Bible has a little footnote here. Our joy could be your joy, and that's a technical question. It's actually kind of both. The reason he's writing these things is so that your joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. Everybody's joy is going to be complete. This isn't the first time we read about fullness of joy in the New Testament. Turn over to 2 John 12, a couple pages. 2 John, verse 12, one of those books in the Bible that is one chapter only. 2 John 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And look at 3 John, 
verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And very quickly from the Gospel of John, John 3.29, the one who, this is John the Baptist, the one who has the bride as the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, says John the Baptist, is now complete. John 15, 11, These things Jesus said, I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. You see, the Christian life and the Christian faith is meant to be one that is filled with joy. Now, as an aside, if all of your friends are non-Christians, you're going to struggle to experience the joy that is intended. John writes to you so that our joy may be complete. But if you have no Christian friends or you don't have a church, then you're just attempting to experience joy independent of the we, the associative we. Yes, the apostolic we, but it's also a communal we. Maybe the reason you lack joy in your life is you lack Christian friends. Lloyd-Jones, in writing on this, has a, a great insight as to the nature of joy. He says this, A failure to keep the commandments of God, says Lloyd-Jones, will always rob us of our conscious possession of eternal life. When we live the godly life, we have this assurance and happiness But if we fall into sin, we doubt and begin to wonder. There's nothing that so upsets our assurance and confidence and steals our joy. We are writing these things to you so that your joy, our joy, may be complete. We need one another in the church. In conclusion, this question about who do you share life with and human friendship wouldn't be complete without an illustration from marriage. And nothing beats a guy's wedding day for fullness of joy. Nothing. But as I look back on my wedding day and the joy that I was experiencing, I discovered very quickly, within a few days really, that the way I was defining joy was a little different than how she was defining joy. I am learning more than 30 years later to see her perspective. Seriously, sharing life together in marriage is at its highest and best from a human standpoint. But if your experience is anything like mine, it is also the place where you're more vulnerable. And while marriage can be the setting or the, 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 the stage for the greatest experience of joy, it can also be the stage for the greatest sorrow that a human heart can bear. And if you've lost a marriage or gone through a breakup, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The answer has to be this, that sharing life with a spouse begins 
with sharing your life with God. And if you went through premarital counseling or you've been in a, a Christian course on dating, you know the triangle illustration. That you're here and your partner, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your, your spouse is here. And the distance between you is like this. And God is at the top of the triangle. And as you grow closer to God, the base of the triangle gets closer. You grow closer to one another. The way to get closer, to experience more joy with us, whether the us is your marriage, whether the us is your friends at school, whether the us is your brothers and your sisters, your parents, your children, the way to grow closer is to grow closer to God. And as the people in your community, in this church, grow closer to God, our joy will be full. How do we apply this morning's message? So many ways, and my time is coming to an end. Let me briefly mention, proclaiming the gospel makes new friends. Preaching the gospel makes new friends. And that's what we're about as a church. While I'm not a Quaker, I like the name for their denomination, a society of friends. That's cool. That's what we are as a society of friends, friends in Christ, friends in the gospel, friends who share the life of God. And therefore, a second application, our mission as a church is to get outside of the four walls and to add friends to our friend group. Not to stay pat, to stay put. I'm good. No. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel and see new friends be made as they impart imbibe and take the life of God. Becoming friends with God, as we've seen, requires faith. I'll refer you for further study to John chapter 9 and the man born blind. The irony in that passage is that the blind man is the only one who really saw Jesus. And the learned Pharisees were staring straight at him and were as blind as he used to be. Another application is what your expectation should be from this pulpit is the proclamation of the gospel. You should expect nothing less than Jesus Christ and him crucified preached from this desk. That's the message that we heard. That's the message that was seen. That's the message that was proclaimed, and that's the message that we need. It's the only way that a sinner can receive the life of God. And so that is what has to be preached. I want to talk about the problem of being friends briefly before I close in prayer. Being together in community, being friends together as a church, is not first and foremost about our similarities. This is not an affinity group. Now, it's true. Churches tend to kind of cleave and divide and collect and coagulate and gather around certain sorts of affinities. Be they worship style or dominant language or other things. How many times have I heard someone say, I'm not going to that church because there's no youth group. Everybody has children and I'm old and retired. Everybody's old and retired, and I'm young and have children. 
I mean, it goes on and on. That's not what church is. It makes sense from a human standpoint, and a lot of churches are pretending to be church, but are just societies of human friends. What we have in common is in Christ, you see. It's the life of God. And whatever the ethnic or age-based or gender or job, socioeconomic differences that we bring to the table are nothing compared to the life that we share in Christ. But that does not mean that you have a right or you have a pass on ignoring those secondary differences. You have a, a duty and a burden because you have the life of God to be interested in the person sitting across from you or behind you or in front of you. To ask them what their life is like if it's different than yours. If they eat different foods than yours, then going out to eat with them and eating those foods a little out of your comfort zone. Being curious. When we don't do that, then the church is less than it should be and there is not fullness of joy. And you can tell when you walk into a church like that, it's dead. The fullness of joy that comes from the life of God is experienced by you when you share it with one another. And when we add people to the fellowship, and this is impossible, humanly speaking. So let's end by asking God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we know that our sin kills joy as Christians. We know it's our sin that kept us from the life in the first place. But now that we've seen, heard, believed the gospel, We desire to experience that fullness of joy as a congregation and let's be honest, we have a lot of work to do. We are out of the box Christians, yes, but selfish, self-centered, preoccupied, busy, and worried. This is not the life of God that we have received. So this morning and in the coming weeks as we continue to read this book and learn about the kind of life that you want us to live together, would you please bring repentance in families between husbands and wives? I have a burden this morning for that. That marriages would be renewed and strengthened, saved from oblivion by the life of God. Pray that you would rebuild friendship between father and son, daughter and mother, brother and sister, and where there has been sin, that it would be addressed, appropriately exposed and dealt with. Lord, if there are any divisions in this church between a brother and sister in Christ who just don't like each other, I pray that the fullness of joy would begin to be experienced as the life of God grows among us and finally Lord we want to pray for new friends that we would share our lives with new people certainly every empty seat this is a huge building Lord 
we pray that it be packed to the gills with people longing to hear and to see in us the life of God and to hear from us about the new life that we have in Christ. We ask that you would do this because we cannot do it ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.